This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 to chapter 21, verse 16. This is on page 929 of your pew Bibles. You can read it behind me on the screen or on your devices or in your own personal Bibles as well. Chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves now know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring you to anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to be necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21. And when he had parted from them and set sail, he came by a straight course to Kaz, and next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When he had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for, those the ship, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. 
On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. When we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his be this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom he, we should lodge. God bless the reading of his word. Morning, Crossbridge. So, Justin Lin is the director of half of the Fast and Furious movies. And recently, I came across this article that was reporting that the next film that he's going to be directing is actually not some big budget production focused on fast cars and over the top stunts, but he's going back to independent films, uh, indie films. This one being focused also on high stakes, but of a different kind. The film is called The Last Days of John Allen Chow. For those of you who don't know who John Allen Chow is, in 2018, John Allen Chow was a 26-year-old missionary who was killed after trying to bring the gospel to an unreached people group the Sentinelese of North Sentinel Island. You can see on the map where this tiny, tiny island is, somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean. These people are one of the last uncontacted people groups in the world, and they vigorously and violently reject contact with outsiders. The government of India has prohibited anyone from making contact with this tribe. And so this movie is based on an article of the same name that came sometime later after his death. But at the time of his death, his story made it to mainstream news, or at least some news outlets. And at the time, I, I think there were still a lot of details that were missing, that, that still needed to be sorted out. People were asking questions like, well, was he acting alone? Did he have a missions agency backing him? Was he trained at all? Was, what was his plan? You know, how was he going to share the gospel with his people group if no one knew the language? You know, I think a lot of opinions were offered. Right? Many were quick to condemn his efforts. And so he was labeled an adventure bro, a colonizer, a thoughtless disease spreader, a misguided missionary, and the list goes on, right? Someone, basically, who got what he deserved for, by intruding into where he wasn't wanted. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, others also saw him as a martyr, right? Someone who was willing to die for the cause of Christ and the salvation of a people group who had never heard of Jesus, Never heard of the gospel. And when the news broke, I kind of vaguely remember this. I somewhat remember that. Even Christians were divided on his death, even as the details were being sorted out. 
Now, it's true that in hindsight, maybe we might have some questions about the approach and some of the finer details and the nuances, but at the same time, even as I was pondering about this 26-year-old missionary, I was reaching out to some of our ministry partners and asking them about their thoughts, right? And one, one had mentioned that, well, well, at the very least, we should commend him as someone who took to heart Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, and to be his witness to the end of the earth. Someone who is willing to die, ready to die, lay down his life for the gospel, no matter the cost. And later on, we find in some of the articles that came out later that it wasn't that he did it without preparation. In fact, he had been preparing most of his life for this Worked with a missions agency. He had was went to go train and study linguistics because this was a group that no one had known what the language was, and so he knew that in order for him to to go and share the gospel, it's going to take years for him to to be accepted and welcomed and to to learn the language so that he could finally share the good news of Jesus. He was trained as an EMT. He even quarantined himself for many days before his trip to the island where he would die. Now, I have no idea how this movie is going to portray John Allen Chow. But if and when it does come out, I, I think it's, what it's going to do is going to shine a light again on some of the core aspects of what we believe as followers of Jesus. Will we have a response then? What is our response going to be then? How are we going to explain some of these things about missions and making disciples of all nations to our friends, to our co-workers, to, you know, in a, in a way that is thoughtful but is also faithful. And there was an article back then in, in 2018 that reported that even some people were questioning whether the Great Commission was outdated in 2018. Now we're five years later, right? It was said, you know, maybe sometimes, oh, maybe perhaps it doesn't apply to tribes that have no contact with the outside world. And I, at least for me, I found it interesting because, you know, we know, we admittedly so, that, you know, some of us, some people are uncomfortable, right, with the biblical idea behind this popular question. What about the person on the island who's never heard about Jesus? Maybe some of us have thought about that, right? What we're really uncomfortable with or really wrestling with is like, how can it be fair that someone as a sinner can still be condemned to hell if they never heard about Jesus or had never heard of the gospel? But I find it interesting because as I examine or just look at this story and the responses to it, I think it's maybe somewhat also clear that people are also uncomfortable with the solution too. As John's trip to the island approached, Mary Ho, she's one of the leaders of the executive team of the missions agency that, that sent him, uh, All Nations, she received an email from another member, four words, Mary, are you sure? Her response was inspired from, taken from Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of who they've never heard? And this is her response, the, pulling the last line. And, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And so my, my intention in bringing up John Allen Child is not to bring up, debate the finer points of how or whatever, but to, to stress the fundamental point of why. 
Why would this 26-year-old guy go to such lengths, such risks to share the gospel? Because if people don't understand the why, if you and I don't understand the why, the people around us don't understand the why, then none of it makes sense. Missions does not make sense. The ministry partners that we were praying for, and honestly today, people working in politically sensitive countries, does not make sense. Their work does not make sense. Preaching the gospel does not make sense. This sermon series does not make sense if we don't understand the why. But I think God has shown time and time and time again through the stories of missionaries and Christians throughout the course of history, and ultimately through the Bible, the Scriptures, and the Gospel, through the cross, that he has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Paul writes, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. After John's death, a friend uh, posted some thoughts that John had shared before his uh, his trip. He said, Death is inevitable. I can die in a car crash, from a snake bite, from cancer. There are many ways we can die. I'm going to the island this November, and I don't know what is going to happen, but I'm ready. I'm ready to lay my life down for the gospel. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series through Acts 13 to 28. We've called this sermon series to the ends of the earth. We're in chapter 20 and 21 today, and we're nearing the end of Paul's three missionary journeys, which began all the way back in Acts 13. So we're going to do a quick review just to see where we've been and see where Paul has gone. So if we look at this first map, Acts 13 to 14, was Paul's first missionary journey. You might not be able to see all the names because they're kind of tiny, but you can see that he left, it's a circle, he left from the city called Antioch in Syria. That's kind of like his missionary base, and he would return there. But along the way, you know, along this first missionary journey, that's where he, he went to Pisidia, right? And he was invited to speak in a synagogue, and we preached on that a little while ago, right? And there he was speaking to these other Jews, and he was trying to make a, a bridge there and connection point, right? And so he shows, he begins with their history, and he shows how their history is really his story, right? God's story. And then he showed how Jesus is the hero of his story, God's story. And, and there along on this first missionary journey is where we also see that Paul focusing his his mission now, shifting his missionary focus to reaching the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Acts 15 takes a pause between the first and second missionary journeys because as uh, Paul returns back to Antioch then, he's sharing all that God had done with them and, and through them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's how chapter 14 ends. And it's this sharing that raises an important theological question for the people then. Now, how do these Gentiles, people like you and I, people who are not ethnically Jewish, how are we received into the family of God? Because if the church is unleashed, which was Acts 1 to 12, and it is unleashed to the ends of the earth, Acts 13 and 28, then it's pretty important to nail down exactly how are people like you and I included into this family of faith, the family of God. The church. And so what's at stake here is really salvation because they were wrestling with, with ideas and thoughts. Like, well, do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to obey certain diets or do I have to obey certain laws? What does it mean to be saved? 
And, and here, what they doubled down on was the belief that we are saved by grace. Grace alone. And so we saw in Acts 15 that grace was challenged, that grace was defended, and grace was shown. And then we, we continued on. Acts 16 to 18, Paul resumed his, uh, his missions his journeys with a second missionary journey. And you can see again how this is kind of a full circle, right? Leaving from Antioch and Syria and coming back, his missionary base. And, and, and as he visits these cities, some of whom he's visiting again to strengthen the disciples and build them up, encourage them, we begin to see how the gospel interacts with different cultures and different peoples and political realities uh, there. And so it's in Lystra and Derby that Paul brings Timothy along. And he circumcises Timothy, not because it's a requirement of faith, but because Timothy has, has Jewish heritage. And it was a way to witness to the Jews. And we see also many different responses to the gospel, just like what Taylor was speaking about, preaching on last week. And then in Thessalonica and Berea, you know, we saw how some opposed while others received the good news. In Athens, right, Paul was contextualizing his message for the Areopagus Council. It was a civic speech before civic leaders. And now, in these past one or two weeks, we've begun to hit on Acts 18 to 20, which is this third missionary journey. He continues on to the different areas, strengthening the churches, building them up, encouraging them. But what you see in this map is that Paul doesn't end his journey back in Antioch, like the first two journeys. It's not a full circle now. He ends it in Jerusalem. And in our pastor today, we're going to be kind of exploring why, what's going on there. And so as Paul finishes up his, his journey, and as he hastens to go to Jerusalem and to Rome and to beyond, there's two points for us today that I kind of want to draw out from our passage. An example and an exhortation. So an example by Paul and an exhortation from Paul. So let's, let's tackle this first point, an example. Paul is ready to die. What we mean by that, he's ready to lay down his life for the gospel, no matter the cost. In parts of Scripture and even earlier in Acts, Paul's clear. He, like, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Rome. In Romans, right, he writes, you know, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, uh, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. And so the, part of the reason that is, as he's been traveling around to these different cities, he's been preaching the gospel, he's been building up the church, he's also been kind of going around and collecting this financial aid, this offering, this collection of financial givings, donations that was to be used to support the poor in Jerusalem, the, the church in Jerusalem. And, and I think in Paul's mind, in part, that this was a way, hopefully, to bring Jewish believers and Gentile believers together. That it was the, the Gentile believers who, were, who would care for these Je Jewish believers to bring them together in Christ. People who were from very different backgrounds and cultures, maybe even socioeconomic backgrounds, but these people who are united in Christ and caring for each other because of the love of Christ. And so he's determined to get to Jerusalem, and then he wants to go to Rome, and he wants to go to, go to the West. He wants to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And in our long, 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 long passage that was read for us this morning, Paul is traveling throughout these regions offering much encouragement. But there is a main thread that runs through these two chapters. I think something that Luke is drawing our attention to, this main thread that runs through these travel logs, is Paul's desire, his aim to go to Jerusalem. And that aim affects even his travel plans. And so in chapter 20, verse 16, says, For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. He says later, as he's speaking to these Ephesian elders, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. And eventually, this is where our passage ends. Our passage ends with Paul going up to Jerusalem, arriving in Jerusalem. Verse 15, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And so this thread runs through these two chapters. And it's Paul's kind of his goal. You know, knowing that he's going to face some sort of affliction, persecution, suffering, imprisonment, he still desires to go. So much so that he's asking these Ephesian elders to come to him. Right? I mean, he was just in Ephesus last week, I think, but he doesn't want to get derailed. He, he, he doesn't want to delay his journey to Jerusalem, verse 17. But the example that we see from Paul is not simply, hey, I, you know, he has travel plans. You know, he booked his ticket. He wants to, he wants to go there. No, it's, it's realizing that what is awaiting him in Jerusalem is persecution, it's imprisonment, it's affliction, it's oppression. And Paul's response then ultimately is, I'm ready to die for Jesus. As Paul is sharing with these Ephesian elders and he's exhorting them, he tells them this, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained, convicted, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so it's clear that he is going to face hardship and difficulty. Maybe he doesn't know the details, but he knows it's going to be hard. He's going to be in chains. Later on, Paul travels to Caesarea, and a prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 21, He took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands as if he was kind of hog-tying himself. And he says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so this prophet is, is taking this his, this belt and using it to physically demonstrate what is going to happen to Paul when he reaches Jerusalem. This belt is symbolizing the chains that await Paul. And Paul's call to missions to make Jesus known to the ends of the earth is going to result in his imprisonment, his suffering, even his death. But at the same time, we also know that it's those chains that is going to take him ultimately to Rome, where he is able to preach in the kingdom of Caesar about the kingdom of God. And so the people around him respond to this 
news that Agabus shares, this prophecy. I mean, can you imagine hearing someone that you love and care for and what is going to happen to them, knowing what's going to happen to them? How would you respond? If our own ministry partners that we pray for every week and they, sometimes they come back and they share, imagine if we were told that something horrifying, something hard is going to happen to them. How would we respond? Right? The Ephesian elders here, they, they know that this might be the last time they're going to see Paul. It is the last time they're going to see Paul. These are elders who are part of the church in Ephesus that Paul had spent years there nurturing and building up. They love him. They care for him. They worry for him. There's a genuine relationship there. It says in verses 37 to 38, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. In Acts 21, after Agabus comes and does his prophecy with the belt, the people respond this way. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I think we, we need to make a distinction here between a prohibition and a prediction. The Holy Spirit was not prohibiting Paul from going to Jerusalem. In fact, we know... Paul, that it, from, from Luke, that it was the Holy Spirit convicting Paul, compelling, constraining Paul to go to Jerusalem, to deliver this collection, to bring the gospel, and ultimately, ultimately that would be how he ends up in Rome. But Agabus, filled with the same Holy Spirit that was leading Paul to go there, now predicts what is going to happen to Paul when he arrives in Jerusalem. And so the people now respond to that prediction with their own prohibition, right? This is where, I don't know if this, they actually said this, right? But we might imagine them saying something like this, like, Paul, don't go. It's dangerous. Like, we need you here. Like, let's be logical. Let's be rational. Let's uh, run a cost-benefit analysis, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't it make more sense? Wouldn't it do us more good if, you know, you were here building up the churches. They, they need you. Like, what good will it do anyone if you're imprisoned? doesn't make sense for you to go. You know, go somewhere else where you're wanted. The text says they urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I think it's might be helpful to keep this in mind when we, we read uh, 21 verse 4. Because there we see another response from local believers in Tyre. There it says, through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And, and this is a short, really short verse. It's a hard verse, right? Because on the surface it, it kind of sounds like the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself, right? Because the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to go and now telling Paul not to go. Like, wh What is it? But I'm not entirely sure if that's the case. At least I don't think, right? I think it's clear from Scripture that Paul still feels strongly that God is sending him to Jerusalem. He has to go, no matter the cost. The simplest interpretation is, is to take it at face value, right? That, that there was a word, there's an utterance from the Spirit that said not to go to Jerusalem. 
We don't know the details. Maybe there wasn't much detail. I don't know. But, but Paul hears that warning and receives it as a word from God, still concluding that it did not invalidate the earlier revelation of the Spirit that said he must go to Jerusalem, even though it means imprisonment and persecution. And this is what we see. Paul still says, I have to go. And I'm ready and willing, no matter the cost. Another way to understand verse 4 is to to kind of see as a shorthand way of saying that what happened with the people who heard Agabus' prophecy might also be happening here. That it was the people's response to what the Spirit had said about Paul's fate that led them now to urge him not to go to Jerusalem. But whether we kind of take it one way or another, I think the pattern that, that Luke is putting forth for us, that God is putting forth for us through the author, is that we can see that Paul's resolve, His aim, his focus is to go to Jerusalem even as the people around him, those whom he loved, those those who loved him, the people around him are weeping. Or even as the people around him, some of them might be cautioning him, warning him, knowing what awaits him. I think it's summed up in Paul's response. And so this is the example, Paul's example for them and for us. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says again later, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I think this is like amazing. When we think about his journey, his testimony, like just a few chapters ago, right? he was Saul who persecuted Christians. Now he's the one who was welcomed by those very Christians. He, and now he is the one who's on the receiving end of that persecution. Now he's the one who's warned by those Christians, you know, to not go. They don't want to see him persecuted. It doesn't make sense. Like, why would you switch sides? It's foolishness in the eyes of the world unless you really understand why. Like, what is at stake here in Paul's mind? What will be lost if these people don't hear about Jesus? If the gospel is not proclaimed? High stakes. Throughout the history of Christian missions, there's been countless examples of people who have counted the cost, who have been ready and who have given up their lives so that the gospel would would go to the ends of the earth. Even around 70 years ago, it was Jim Elliott who was speared to death as they sought to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And it was Jim Elliott who wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In uh, November 2021, Crossbridge and CBCGB, we hosted a, a viewing of the movie Ends of the Earth here in the sanctuary. It's a documentary on the stories of MAF pilots. That's Mission Aviation Fellowship. Stories of pilots past and present who were using their gifting, their calling as pilots to bring the gospel to the most 
isolated in inaccessible places on earth. And so you'd have these people in villages who would spend years just even developing and carving out a path, a landing strip for the plane to come. And they would rejoice when the planes would come, not just because they were just bringing supplies, but because they would bring the, the gospel. And so much so that some of these villages now, they wanted to go to other neighboring villages to bring the gospel to them. Joyce Lynn was one of those pilots, and I know that she was a dear friend to some of our CB members. She was a graduate of MIT. She went to Gordon-Conwell. In May of 2020, a few months into the global pandemic, Joyce was flying to deliver COVID-19 supplies to a remote village in Indonesia when her plane went down, and she went to be with the Lord. Joyce was ready and willing to obey God, no matter the cost, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and the utmost importance for others to know him too. I don't mention these people lightly. Right? This isn't just a way to get a sermon illustration or just another example, but these are real people. These are our friends, our family members, people who we know, people who are near and dear to us, people who are an example to us in the same way that Paul was an example to these early Christians and still is for us today. An example of what it means to count the cost, to be ready and willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel, that all would know and believe in the name of Jesus and the good news of Jesus. Even as I was reading these stories and reading this passage, I myself found myself particularly convicted, you know, because at times we, it's very easy to be comfortable and to not count the cost. It's very easy to be caught up in the busyness, you know, I find myself, you know, just this past week, so busy trying, because a tree fell down in my yard, and so I had to, like, call, and I, we just moved into a new home, and so now I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a homeowner, and so now I'm trying to, like, call different quotes and learn what it means to do that and to get this tree removed, right? But, you know, it, it's, to me, you know, as I was reflecting this past week, I've just swapped out, you know, the busyness of studying for SATs to the busyness of calling landscaping people and you know, all these, you know, just trying to build up my own home, right? Instead of trying to build up the kingdom of God. I think in Paul's words to the Ephesian elders, we're given not just an example by Paul, but also an exhortation from Paul. And so an example from Paul, he is, he is ready to die. He, he, he gets it. He, he treasures the good news of Jesus, and he doesn't want that to be confined just to him. He's counting the cost. But there's also an exhortation from Paul. Even as Paul goes out, the church remains, and Paul exhorts them with this point. The church must be ready to defend, to guard the gospel, so Paul says to them in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul is, in a sense, in a sense he's passing on the torch to these elders. The church leaders whom he nurtured and poured into, and he exhorts them to be ready for wolves. The same Holy Spirit who calls Paul to go uh, to go, called these elders to stay and to shepherd, and he calls the church to guard the gospel. 
He is exhorting the church, us, of a threat, a danger that is external, that might be internal, and that is definitely serious. It's serious because the way that he describes it, what, at st- what is at stake here is the church of God which was bought with the blood of Jesus. The church of God that belongs to God that is in danger of being lost. The danger could be external, he warns, of fierce wolves coming in to draw people away from Jesus. The danger could be internal. Even as, he says, from among your own selves will arise people speaking twisted things. I think perhaps maybe one danger today is maybe not so much actual people coming into our midst, but maybe a change in mindset. Something that is more insidious, slow-growing. A change in how we view the Great Commission, like what we mentioned earlier from that article. How we view missions, how we view the church's role in all of this, right? It might be more insidious than explicit as it seeps into our lives, into our minds, and into the church, that eventually we start buying into, we even start normalizing the belief that the gospel must be contained within these four walls. But I think from this passage, from Paul, from these Christian missionaries, we have an example, a reminder of what is at stake. We have an example and an exhortation to go, and an example and an exhortation to guard the truth of the gospel and make it known. And as we do so, whether we're here in our community or overseas in another country, we look continually to Jesus as our hope, as our why in life and death and everything in between. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the good news of Jesus. We give thanks to you for the cross, for the price that you paid to redeem us, to free us from slavery to sin. We, we, our hearts are, are saddened because we know that not everyone knows this joyous news. Help us to, to continue to take part, empowered and enabled by the Spirit, with your word, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.